every time you buy meat, you vote for the system you want to produce it. Mm. Not just meat, anytime you buy any food. And that, because it can be very easy to be despondent. Mm. Uh, There actually is a message of hope here, and it is that you have an enormous capacity to to induce and promote change. That was Grant Hilliard, and you're listening to The Regenerative Journey. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and internationally and their continuing connection to country, culture, community, land, sea and sky. And we pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging. G'day, I'm your host Charlie Arnott, an eighth generational Australian regenerative farmer. And in this podcast series, I'll be diving deep and exploring my guests' unique perspectives on the world so you can apply their experience and knowledge to cultivate your own transition to a more regenerative way of life. Welcome to The Regenerative Journey with your host, Charlie Arnott. G'day, this episode is with Grant Hilliard from Feather and Bone, uh, essentially a butcher shop uh, in Sydney. I met Grant in his in his factory, as it were, or his processing plant, um, so it was a fair bit of noise. However, what we did talk about was uh, many things. One of them was his new book, The Ethical Omnivore, he's put together with his partner, Laura. Um, we talked about the environment and how it's subsidising the, the food system at the moment, government policy, how that might be able to be changed, um, his unique business um, uh, model of du- sourcing direct from farmers, um, the meat from farmers. We also talked about um, actually how we can vote with our with our forks and that our food choices can actually inform um, not just our own health but the the, the regenerative uh, farming practices on the farms where that meat has come from. Um, had a, I've known Grant for many years now, and lovely to catch up with him in situ on uh, in his uh, in his shop there. Um, I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did with Grant Hilliard. Grant. Hilliard, welcome Thanks to coming. welcome to the regenerative journey. Welcome to the uh, welcome to your warehouse here in Marrickville in Sydney. Sunny Mar- sunny Marrickville. Yes, you'll um, for our uh, listeners, you will hear because we are in pretty much the heart of Sydney. Um, airplanes above. Not too many, actually. This is one of the the good things about COVID is that uh, the air traffic over our place is dramatically reduced at the moment, so we're grateful for it. Real estate values have just gone through the roof. Uh, <laughs> well, it, it's a double-edged sword. <laughs> They've dropped a couple of enormously and, and risen in other ways. Yeah. Um, and we'll probably also hear some trucks turning up. I think we've Fortunately, there's been eight deliveries today. I think we've probably done with it now. I think that was the last one. And for those wondering where we are, Grant, tell, why don't you tell us um, where, you know, what, what does this mean to be here um, in, your, in your warehouse doing what you're doing? What, what, what's the significance of, of this, this, where we are? Uh, well, we're in Marrickville, which for those of you who aren't from Sydney is sort of in a, in a west uh, industrial area. And... Um, it's still one of the last areas near Sydney that you can do 24-hour industry, if you wish. Um, not that we do that, but it's possible because uh, there's no residential here. So this is the upstairs of our – I don't like to call it a factory. It's sort of mm. because we don't manufacture as such. It uh, has connotations, doesn't it, factory? It does. So, But, it, you know, 
workshop's the best thing that I can come up with, but it sort of also doesn't really reflect what we do. We're a butcher shop, essentially, uh, but we do wholesale and retail here. So while we have a small shop downstairs, um, we also send out a lot of orders to private customers around Sydney and beyond, and also lots of restaurants and third-party resellers, although we don't do much of that as well. So... We only buy whole carcasses, and what we saw this morning was mm. just happened that a lot of um, a lot of trucks turned up with those whole carcasses all at once, from chickens to lambs to uh, goats and um, everything in between. So we had a good look through the co- the cold room there this morning. Mm. There's lamb, there's goat, there's 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 pigs, um, ducks, chickens, um, and that's just what was sort of in there. Then we there was the 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 the, um, the breaking down, I guess, floor as it were. Yeah, the workroom. Workroom um, and your little kitchen, uh, and then your storage for the for the shop front. Yeah, so, so it's um, it's it's compact, but we can get a lot in it. So mm. um, the cool room's a rail system, so we can sort of shunt. Mm. all the carcasses around because some of these are, are very large we tend to buy bigger beef than you would ordinarily find um, most of the beef we buy is three to four years old at mm. least at least two um, which is fairly unusual most of the australian beef market is built on on yearling beef for us that's sort of not particularly interesting and um, we do buy grass and milk fed veal up to about six seven months and then we really don't buy much beef again for in the life of the animal anyway for another two years mm. so uh, they're two really quite distinct products mostly in australia you'll find veal is yielding at about 10 months and beef is yielding at about 14 months the distinction between those two products is actually very small um, if you got veal from us and beef from us you'd see the dramatic difference between those two products which is sort of how it should be um, but, you know, we buy directly from farmers and that it's those relationships that have sustained the business and, and it's what our customers seek out when they come to buy from us too. Now, I want to get back to that point of difference mm. that you have from, from all. I, I mean, I don't know anyone else. We can get into it. Anyone else is doing quite what you're doing in, in this sort of format. Yeah. What I'm interested, um, Grant, is understanding, as the name of the podcast suggests, you know, um, somewhat of a regenerative journey that you may have had. Mm. Um, I know we've known each other for some some years now, mm. and so I've, I've been stalking you. I've sussed you out. You know, stalking from a distance. Found, Charlie, yeah, that's right. <laughs> I've found those that footage and video on uh, internet that don't know where that came from. You obviously young and needed the money. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> I, I'm not embarrassed about that. We've all done it, don't worry. Yeah. Um, <laughs> getting back on track. Um, so what I'm interested in is is understanding, you know, I guess a journey from you know early days to where you are now. You know, w- w- any points along the way that you had some t- t- uh, epiphanies, turning points, you know, because I understand you you have had a journey, you know, and here we are. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not sure whether this is what you thought you would be doing now when, you know, 20 years ago, but, you know, no. just, just, yeah, well, give me a bit of an insight as mm. to, you know, what your life was. Um, you can go back as far as you want. You can go back to, um, let's start there, maybe, just, you know, where, where, you, where you grew up to give us a sort of the, the, the context okay, I'll of give you where you got to now. Potted history. I grew up in Melbourne, very suburban, really had no contact at all with, with farm culture. Our, our family didn't have, you know, a lot of people had relatives that had a farm um, that wasn't us. And mm. uh, so I spent z- very little time on farms, except there was one crucial exchange, which is when I was in year five at primary school, and there were three of us 
chosen in our class to do exchanges with small rural communities. And we spent a week uh, going to school. There's, There's one now. That's a very faint one, though. That's the, that's um, on, that's the way to, on the way to Ballina. Yeah, that's a light, <laughs> that's just a very light one. Um, so I spent a, a week on his farm and going with, to school with him, and then he came up and spent a week. Where was the farm? It was at Yanaki, which is almost the last town southernmost town in Australia, just before you get to uh, Wilson's Promontory in yeah, southern cool. Victoria, yeah. South Gippsland. Uh, you know, famous dairy country because it rains there a lot. And a lot of it's very rich country as well. Um, so it was, a, yeah, a dairy farm. And, but he, he, uh, he also ran some sheep just for his own consumption. And, you know, one day he said, oh, look, why don't you climb on, this is the father, and they just finished milking. And he said, why don't you climb on one of the sheep? And I sort of thought that was sort of a strange thing to do anyway and I was very <laughs> tentative about holding onto the wool thought I'd you know pull its hair and you were so you were 11 is that right is that uh, a bit younger I was a bit younger 10 maybe yeah okay yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah I sort of felt too big for the sheep anyway I fell off of course straight away straight into where the cows had been waiting to be milked so it was a very slushy <laughs> and you know which was the whole point of the exercise I'm assuming <laughs> the city kid yeah that's right and uh, um but then he just sort of reached around and grabbed one of the sheep and pulled it back and slit its throat and completely unexpectedly mm. and or at least to me and uh it was it was the first time i'd seen a large animal sort of bigger than a fish being killed mm. and it it had a profound effect on me really um he because he then said we're only killing this sheep because you're here. <laughs> oh no! Yes. So you had, you had to you had to shoulder that responsibility. Well, that's what it. I thought at the time, and yeah. uh, sort of slightly unusually that um, that boy who I um, who I sort of was billeted with mm. uh, is now a very good customer of the business here in Sydney, wow. and um, we've our paths have crossed again forty five years later. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, so it's funny how things go. Anyway, that was my only contact with farms, but the killing of that was, you know, formative in that now we're responsible indirectly or directly mm. for the deaths of, you know, hundreds of maybe thousands of animals a year, and you know, from chickens right through to cattle. So the real question is how do you account for that? Mm. And, and, you know, I think you can, providing you confront all the realities of what it means to grow them, raise them, transport them, kill them, and then eat them. And if you, if you can sort of account for all those sort of steps in the way, then, it's, then it is a reasonable exchange. But, you know, you have to be – you do have to sort of confront it. It, mm. isn't, it isn't – there's nothing pretty about killing things. And, and when you lose the reverence for that and the importance of that, then, you know, it's time to get out of the game. Um, only buying whole carcasses, so my phone's going off. <laughs> oh, it's Scott Morrison, what? <laughs> What's hearing you yeah, for? Yeah, ScoMo, not, not today. <laughs> He's looking for some advice. Mm. Or maybe he just wants some chops. He's on the regenerative uh, journey. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hope. Um, because that's something I really <laughs> would like to talk he's, about he's is the next. importance of, of, of policy in this space. Yeah, uh, good. But good. I'll make a note of that. Uh, that's a bit further down the track. So. Mm -hmm. Whatever you eat, 
you have to account for it and everything has a footprint. There's nothing that you can produce that doesn't, doesn't produce a sort of a consequence and that applies to animals and clearly the consequence for an animal is its death. Mm. Um, but it also applies to, you know, you're not, you're not immune from that argument or exempt from that argument just because you or say have a vegetarian diet. There's the impact of growing broadacre soybeans is profound and, mm. you know, in terms of chemical use, it's probably the highest chemical use you know, for, for growing grains and crops is probably the highest chemical use in agriculture in the world. And, you know, from my point of view, that, that, that is a profound impact that you have to account for. Mm. So it's not just a simple argument, oh, well, you know, how can you kill, how can you eat things? You know, animals are just a certain, another part of, of what is a very complex ecosystem. If, if, if you only think of animals as, as, as the export from a farm, then you're misunderstanding what farms mm. truly are. Mm. They're, they're complex interconnected um you know matrix of mm. of living things and the best farmers understand that and nurture that relationship all the time and what we're really trying to sort of get to now i guess is that that relationship that exists under the ground that's that the industrial agriculture has has largely you know reduced and in, reduced the, the biological activity that mm. happens under the ground that that is also mirrored above the ground and the lack of connection that many farmers feel as a result of the industrial sort of agriculture process is, is mirrored in their extremely high suicide rates. It's they're, they're isolated in exactly the same way that the microbes in their soil are isolated. What we're looking for is a food of connection. And that exists at a, at a microbial level, but it also exists very strongly at a social level. And that really is now our purpose, is to provide connection and in, a, in a, the, the sense that we connect uh, consumers with the people who produce their food, but also provide connection by stimulating farmers and uh, sponsoring, in a sense, farmers who are very interested in developing those networks of connection. So, you know, it's a, it works at a metaphorical level, but it also works at a very literal level. I want to just go back to that experience you had there. Um, I mean, because I, I imagine that could have and may have set up, you know, a, 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 a particular or a number of different perspectives or, 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 or sort of behaviours or, you know, thinking about what farming was and where your food's from. I mean, did you go home and, I don't know, stop eating meat or, or not want to think about what, you know, animals as a, as a, as a food source? Well, from my experience as a 10-year-old? Yeah, then, yeah. Uh, not really. I, I, you know, like most people, I had my vegetarian phase and that was probably because I had a vegetarian girlfriend for a number of years and um, it was just easier to do, eat. Do, do, do all men do that? I think so. Oh, whoops! Videos falling over. Um, and in fact, it was only when I. How long did you have to? Oh, it was fine. It was like three years. I ate a bit of fish at that time. Did um, you sneak? Did you like sneak in a bit of red meat every now? No, I didn't because we're living in a remote uh, sort of country setting and uh, at a wild, on a wildlife refuge, and um, which was formative in its sense in in itself because you know it was the first time I'd lived out of the city uh, for any length of time, and it was. You know, it was an eye-opener, really, being mm. on being on remote country, and uh, that was only a very small area was cleared. The rest was native forest, and unfortunately, it burnt down in last year's fires. At, so we're talking Victoria. Uh, that was far south coast yeah, in nice. New South Wales, so yeah, um, near Eden, and mm. um, it was a wonderful place, absolutely wonderful place. But it also, you know, sort of turned me on to living in the country, so which I did for a number of years, and then travelled for a number of years, and then finished up in Sydney because I wanted to study here. So. 
And what did you study? And I know we're going to hopefully step into your your the, your your career in the world of restaurants, which I'm really inter- interested mm. in. So studying what were you? I did, came to Sydney to do the communications course at University of Technology. Yeah, right. Um, so I was majoring in film and um, and sound, and uh, so I made lots of films and and mainly shot them and made a few of my own as well. And yeah, cool. Can is is that can people? Source those? No, there might be some short ones still sticking around. (laughs) See, I wasn't joking earlier on. Yeah, no, it was pretty. uh, (laughs) It was sort of the very end of analog filmmaking. Um, We shot most of those things on sixteen mil, and uh, which was absolutely fantastic from a cinematographer's point of view. It was great fun to work with film and and um, and light with with sixteen mil film Mm. um, because at the time videos. Were not just didn't have the quality that they have now. Like mm. the idea that you could yeah. film something like this on your phone. I know, crazy. So, um, so that that evolved into a project that um, that became an installation for the Australian Centre of Moving Image, and that occupied me for a number of years. And it was a fairly uh, unsuccessful project by the time it finished because the literally the technology had passed it by. The idea was that you would watch short films in a small small area like a, a booth like a photo booth in fact mm. and um and that that the photos that it took were sent up to the internet now that at the time was a sort of a radical proposal totally. uh and now of course it's like a four-year-old can we can't escape it. If, yeah so it, we took too long to realize it but the trouble was we we're working with nascent technologies and trying to fit technologies that weren't designed like that together mm. and that that's a very time-consuming and expensive process. So it was done all on the smell of an oily bag, really. I'd always been working in restaurants when I was doing that work, and um, as, a, as a like a um, just as a waiter, yeah, pay the bills, pay the bills, exactly. Yeah, and cool. um, but I worked with some people that were very influential on me. And uh, can we name any? Yeah, Tony Bilson. I worked at wow. uh, Finbush, and Tony Bilson. You know, there's a lot of people in Sydney who would say he still owes me money, um, <laughs> but. Uh, <laughs> and there was that about it, but the other thing would, was that he, you know, he was a very committed chef, and his his attention to detail, and uh, you know, everything was made on site. Everything, mm. you know, six different ice creams each day, and wow. all the bread and everything. So he he, he had um, at, towards the end of his career, um, he was at. Um Pit Water was he up at the? Well, he, he started there? at Barrow Waters. Waters. That was yeah. where he began with Gay when they were still oh, together, right. and um, I think they split up at that point because he had Tony's Bonger. He started in Melbourne anyway, mm. and I sort of was worked for him at the end, near the end of his, not quite the end, but sort of near near the end of mm. his career. But he was tremendously influential about what a restaurant could be. Um, but I did finish up at um, Sean's Panorama in in Bondi and worked there for nine years and. Um, that was probably the biggest influence because I, st- I was the sommelier there and was sourcing wine for that restaurant mm-hmm. and um, uh, visiting vineyards really sort of got me into the importance of, of, being, of locating something. And it's sort of fairly obvious with wine because people always you know, sort of talk about that as an important thing with wine, but they rarely talk about that in relation to any other product. And for me, that was really curious and also that lamb especially, was never differentiated by breed. It was always, you could possibly get organic or milk fed, so you might differentiate by age or, or certification system, but you would never know the breed of that sheep. Mm. And 
you know, I knew that there was about 300 breeds of sheep out there and maybe 100 in Australia. So why, was they, where were they, why were they never labelled that way when uh, beef certainly was, obviously fish were, maybe not accurately in the case of fish, um, <laughs> although that's changed. Mm. Uh, well, wine, I mean, wine, you know, back to the source of your hmm. somewhat inspiration or the, the sort of the, your source of curiosity, I mean, that's, that's, you don't get a bottle of wine without knowing the, the, the vine on which it, it grew. Quite, and that it can reflect... It can reflect that place accurately. Mm. So that's the French idea of terroir, I guess, but you know, um, that's generally fairly thinly understood as just being like a chemical representation of mm. its place. But it, the crucial distinction in the French understanding of that is that it builds in the impact of people in relationship to it. And that's, that's the distinction that's really important because it's about how people interact with the land and the vine, in that case the vine, and that what that produces, what that interaction produces, mm. it's not just the sort of the vine as though it's operating, you know, it's the, the importance of the observer mm. and the impact of the observer, you know. So it can have of, an impact. Isn't, it, isn't, it, isn't there some sort of science or even some philosophical thing around the, you know, someone watching something else observing? Well, it's quantum mechanics, yeah, really. That's, so, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, so and it's, it, it happens in a very real sense, but in a very, uh, you know, prosaic sense, obviously mm. the decisions that, are, that are a vigneron make um, will impact, you know, the ripeness of the wine and mm. how many bunches are left on the vine and whether you thin and all that, so all those decisions in that you make during the growing season, and not to mention the decisions you make as a winemaker, which are two different things. So, uh, yeah, so I went looking for lamb and I'd heard a, a, a story on Radio National about Southdown lamb and, and I didn't know anything about them. And the woman on the radio said, you haven't lived if you haven't tried Southdown lamb. <laughs> and I thought, well, that's curious. So I went and looked for some Southdown lamb, and there, there's not many around, to be honest. There's um, a bit more common in Victoria, but in New South Wales, virtually gone. Uh, but after about six months of very sort of fruitless research, um, and this is when the internet was very, very slow, so it took a long time to find anything. <laughs> You're going to dial up. Um, it was. It was on 14.4 and 28.8 if you were lucky. So everything took a, you know, um, the change was in 20 to, years. You could have walked to the farm quicker, probably. Pretty much. <laughs> anyway, I found a, a breeder up in um, um, between Oberon and Bathurst mm. and uh, who's still there, and he, I rang him up and said, I'm interested in buying three Southdowns, and he runs a small Southdown and Black Suffolk um, stud. And for those who don't know, Southdown are sort of the parents of all the all the sheep from the southern southern England, and certainly Black Suffolk were bred from Southdowns. Um, and he said, "Well, why do you want those?" And I said, "Oh, I heard they're better." And he, there was a sort of a long silence, and he said, "Well, yeah, they are. We sell the Black Suffolks and we eat the Southdowns." And, uh, <laughs> I mean, obviously, not the stud sheep, but the others. And, um, but he did agree to sell me three. And so with my $300 stake, um, which is all I had, <laughs> so it was sort of convenient, they were $100 committed. each. Yeah. Um, he agreed and I, the logistics were really difficult because I had no, no sort of logistics set up of cold chain stuff, mm. but we did sort of work it out eventually with lots of, going through lots of hands and um, three chefs in Sydney bought three different Southdown lambs. So, you, so you're still working at Sean's? Yeah, and so then, he bought one. And you went, oh, you were just sort of like, the, not the middleman, but you were just trying to facilitate mm. lamb from central, well, where is it, Tablelands? Yeah, central Tablelands. Table, yeah. Into Sydney and 
give it go three ways with it. Mm. Yeah, right. Cool. So, where was where was that where was that fellow selling them before? Like, what well, was it was it? all stud. He really wasn't. He was just he wasn't sort of selling them to just to send no, to a restaurant or no. a butcher or anything. It was just it was the first time someone really approached. So him, his was probably going into the yards and going normal routes out of there. Wasn't yeah, that the, he would eat. You know, they would eat what. The excess, the ones that they didn't want to sell as stud stud mm. animals. Mm. Um, you know, it was, it was just, he was uh, he and his wife were very sort of um, busy professional. You know, he was an obstetrician. His wife was a nurse, so they were very busy at the time, and yeah. um, uh, it was very much a side a project, passion. relatively small yeah. scale. So you know, it wasn't a large stud farm by any means. But anyway, it did. The feedback from that convinced me that there was something in it. People were very positive about it, and. Um, and it sort of went from there, really. I was only going to buy, you know, it wasn't, I'd already been sourcing garlic and oil and wine, so it didn't seem that much of a move to mm. sideways shift to then start sourcing land. And the idea being I'd just sell them whole, so I only really needed the logistics of keeping them cool for a few days before mm. I could pass them on to the restaurant. Um, the idea that I would break them up and butcher them mm. hadn't really occurred to me. You can see how deeply I'd thought about the business case of this. <laughs> it was it was a curiosity. The best really. businesses are just the ones that well happen. You know, you know there, there was a, adapt. I didn't really have a, a view of whether they would be better or not. I was just mm. curious to see the react. You know how people would would find them and whether older breeds of of sheep in particular were better. Mm. You know what was to recommend them or mm. why don't we grow them anymore what's the point here you know who else was doing that i mean who, who else was was supplying sourcing let's call them heirloom breeds or sort of those rare breeds unusual breeds i mean was well, no, that, no one really. no one so, so in, in all the restaurants at that time and i was eating in I'd lo- i mean i've got to say anyone who hasn't been to sean's panorama in bondi he's probably in top three restaurants just going in there and sitting there and i love the 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 Everyone is there to eat and enjoy and to, yeah. and to talk to That's the other people I don't know yeah. Yeah. about what do you got over there? You know, like, and it's just a most wonderful. Um, I've been there for years. I've got to go back. Um, so, so people just weren't doing it. There was on a menu in restaurants in Sydney. There wasn't the origin. It was it was, a, it was been, a steak or there a had man, been chop. illabo lamb that had, had been of sort course, of yeah. uh, around for a little while mm. before my time on those. Uh, but that was that was a. A, a young lamb that was grain and milk fed, uh, mm. as far as I know, and from Illabo, and as people who lived in the village next to it would say, "What's so special about Illabo?" <laughs> you know, like I live <laughs> ten miles down the road. You know, I went to Illabo Primary, but I don't think it's any better than where we are. Um, but of course, if in the city, Illabo lamb sort of you know was on a lot of it resonated with people. Somehow. Yeah, I think mm. I think Neil Perry might have picked picked them up early mm. on, and and they're probably very good quality, but their breed wasn't noted. Yeah. Um, in Australia, because of the wool industry, it's really sort of pulled the meat breed industry out of shape because it's been run from the front end of the wool industry mm. essentially, and uh, so a lot of it, a lot of what you buy is is a cross that that will have merino in it somewhere along the line, mm. um, and so I was trying to find things that were not merino based. Yeah, cool. So Wiltshire horns, um, Southdown. Um, later, Black Suffolk, uh, Texel, Hampshire, oh, Texels. Yeah. yeah, these days I get uh, Texels from Vince at Morlands and Vince um, Heffernan. Yeah, Vince, you're on my list of people to interview too. So, for listening to this, oh, get right. ready. I'll tell him. Seeing you in a week or so. <laughs> um, and you know, visiting visiting farms is, you know, you, 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 I felt I couldn't sell a wine until I'd sort of been to most of the farms mm. and 
So that's the discipline of what we do is that we visit every farm that we source from, try and find out as much as, as we can from that grower. We're not trying to trip them up, we're just trying to extract as much information because that's the sort of stuff that our customers want to know. Mm, and sure. and um, it, as, it, as it's grown, what we've been able to do is, is, is provide links between farmers because a lot of these farmers are operating uh, in a vacuum. Mm. They're not their next door neighbours aren't doing what they're doing, and um, and if you can provide you know connection with another farmer who's already tried something, it saves failing at the same thing twice, mm. and that informational exchange is is really really important. And um, I mean, we both participated in that Australian Futures project, and that was all about. You know, basically every every project in that was about how do you get information circulating. Mm. They were all different versions of the same <coughs> idea, which says something about the problem for Australian agriculture and relatively low population densities, vast distances, um, and and an emptying out of the landscape at a, at a, at a human level, but also mm. at a microbial level. It's a, it's a reflection, isn't it? The industry, you know, that that is beyond the farm gate is a reflection of what happens, you know, um, inside the farm, isn't it? That there's such, dis you know, there's isolation, you know, on a farm it's a monocrop, you know, there, there are individual things, you know, and, and there's not diversity. And, and beyond that too, beyond the farm gate, there's just not the diversity of opportunities of people to sell to people like you, you know, mm. or there's just not, you know, there's, it's such a, it, you know, the rule applies really from, you know, from internally and externally and, the good news is I feel that, you know, um, you and Laura and what you're doing here, you're sort of really reshaping the system, not just beyond the farm gate, not just because you're selling it to someone downstairs who's going to pop in today and get a bag of chops, mm. but you, as you just said, you're influencing, if not decisions, at least the thinking of some of the farmers because you're sharing it. And, and, the, and the wonderful thing is you're creating um, a something for people to aim for and to go towards because I know a lot of farmers are changing their practices or want to change their practices because what they're doing is painful in some way yeah. whether it's financially it's yeah. environmentally you know socially whatever it is yeah. and and that's one driver but what you're creating is something to aim for and something to move towards because you know it's easy well not easy but it's one thing to sort of be going I don't want to do that shit anymore and but where they're going to go to yeah you know? well the and and it's it's a big scary world of marketing and a lot of farmers for very good reasons aren't particularly good at marketing their own product oh. and and you know they're busy on their Too farm. Much to do. Yeah that's right there is there's a handful of farmers that that I know that it, that can both grow and market mm. it's really rare though and it it would rely on them a proximity to sydney that not, not many have uh, it would also rely on a mastery of social media which mm. not many have um, and although that has changed it dramatically, we're just talking about sort of doing the research with slow internet speeds. Mm. What has changed since we started is that farmers now can talk to their audiences much more directly than they could before through Instagram, especially, yeah. and talk to chefs much more directly than they could before. So, in some sense, some senses they're less reliant on what we do, except not many restaurants are interested in whole bodies of beef at 400 kilos. No. So. Uh, you know, there's still a there's still a key role for us, mm. um, and so you have to keep, you know, sort of inventing what your your role is, and and um, and also stay ahead. You know, we were focused on rare breeds initially, and then 
you know, in some ways that was too narrow a focus because it isn't just rare breeds. While I'm, we're, we're very much interested in genetic diversity, that isn't, that isn't the whole story. Mm. It's part of the story. Mm. Uh, I think probably what's happened and the change since we started to now is that we understand about the interconnection of things in a much more deep way and that, that genetic diversity is, is a part of that story, not just the whole story. So, so while we're you know, extremely still very sort of animated by the idea that we need to keep these older breeds of sheep and pigs especially and chickens because mm. the genetic cul-de-sac of, of industrial chicken and pig production is, is extraordinarily concerning. And, and it's not just livestock. This applies to to food crops, fruit. You know, the, the reduction in the number of things that we eat, or mm-hmm. varieties of the numbers of things we eat, is alarming. And it's not just that we've reduced the number, which makes us much more vulnerable to climatic change. It also, a lot in a lot of cases, those are proprietary um, genetics, mm. and the people who own those genetics. They're the pornographers of food. They're not. They're not interested in your in your feeding you well. They're interested yeah. in profit, and yeah. and you know that's not the reason they're into it. They're not saying, well, this way we're going to feed the world's poor. You know, mm. they're saying we can make a mozza on this by tying up the sort yeah. of industrial pig genetics for the whole of Europe. You know, yeah. and that to me is extremely concerning because we've inherited the commons of those genetics. Mm. That's humanity's sort of work, mm. essentially, mm. in taking wild animals and sort of shaping their genetics to, to, to suit. But it's not just that you're sort of producing a highly specialised creature, and in many cases they are, but you're producing something with vitality and, and you know, that can breed by itself, which would be a sort of a minimum, um, but also have a, um, a resilience, you know, because we're, as it's quite clear, we're going through if not changes, at least more variable climate. Mm. And if you haven't got species of, of foodstuffs that can handle that, we're in deep, deep trouble. And so, you know, that ties into soil fertility and, you know, we, we now think that what we do is buy just a very small portion of what a farm produces. It just happens it's the saleable quantity mm. and that's what actually allows them to do the rest of their work. So we just sort of function in the 10%, which is the exchange of, of, of what they can sell, but mm. their work is is making a highly productive mm. ecosystem. And also, in the importance from a nutrients point of view, you mm. know whether it's the rare breeds or it's just um, you know looking at the genetics, um, and as importantly, and many would argue, it's actually more important the the phenotype. You know the actual yes. the, the environment in which it lives and the food it eats and the you know the harmony in which it sort of um, exists within that that um, that environment. I mean, that's and the diversity of the diet is then reflected in the diversity of the nutrient profile of that particular food, yeah. whether it's a carrot or a cow. You know, this is the stuff I think we're learning. As you were saying, you know, mm. if you got a, if everyone's using the same breed of pig and feeding that's the same thing, grain mix, and then yeah. the same exactly like so, and like mm. we we've got there's a huge different sort of. In our population, um, in any population, there's a, you know, whilst as a human, you know, if the same species, we need particular things. We all have different requirements. A little bit more of this, and a little bit more of that. And if we, our diet is so restricted to, you know, what I mean, there's some great stats around it that of all the thousands of vegetables that one could grow, mm. you know, there's five that we basically eat 90% of the time. Mm. You know, and so that must have some 
impact on our on our health. You know, just from a like we're just not clearly getting the nutrients. So you're obviously operating more in the meat world, but it's the same rules apply, isn't it? You know, totally, and, and that's that's yes, it's a, it's a huge point and one one hadn't got to, but. Um, do you want to talk about now or later? Oh, yeah, no, it's, <laughs> now's, now's good. I mean, uh, you know, it's a thing about, the, you know, a lot of people will say, oh, we market grass-fed beef. And, you know, for us, that's a, a fairly thin understanding of it. Um, you know, we're interested in what might be pasture-raised, and that sounds like a, you know, like a, a nuanced and needless sort of differentiation. But, you know, the, the, the species diversity in that pasture is absolutely crucial, mm. not just for the health of the pasture and the things that live underneath and in it, but for the animals that feed on it. And, you know, if, if, if you are going to take any sort of meat into your body, it just as that what it ate becomes its body, it's going to become yours. So, mm. you know, all of those decisions are really vital. And further to your point, that's the problem with ration feeding, is that, is that it's based on some notional average requirement mm. for an animal and like us every animal has variable requirements from day to day and if we listen to our, our body you give it a chance to listen to our body we can actually work out what we need mm. and uh, a ration system just doesn't allow that freedom at all they have to eat that and so what they tend to do is eat overeat because they're trying to seek out sort of one trace element that's it, that might be present there just that uh, that might be present there, and so you know they eat far more than they need to simply to get to get full. You know, oh, not they're way past full. What what they're trying to do is get, you know, it might be copper, it might yeah. just be a tiny bit of molybdenum that they need, mm. and they know it. Well, that, that's what humans do, isn't it? Exactly right. But we, but we don't we don't give ourselves the credit, nor you know we're so denatured and so divorced from the, from from food. And it's so fetishized now, instead of it being like one of the most straightforward for those who can afford it, and we're mm. not talking about people who can't get food, but for most people in Australia, they're not food insecure. It's changing, of course, but they're not. And so those choices are really crucial. And, um, and of course, there's a difference between food insecure and, and, you know, a prisoner is not food insecure, but might want for an enormous amount within their diet. Mm. So it's not just, and that's how I think of those animals. They're not in, in feedlots. They're not food insecure. They're, they, they get enough to eat, but do they get the right things to eat? And do they get the, ch the chance to choose themselves? And anyone who's watched any animals move around a diverse pasture will know that animals of different ages will, will target different crops or different grasses um, at different times through the day. You know, so standing back and letting letting systems work out is is the biggest challenge you know for for farmers who are used to intervening it's mm. really quite um confronting to think that you're not the biggest thing around here you know <laughs> and that uh which is a bit like child rearing in that you sort of think it's all about you they, if, if i do this i'm going to ruin them but standing back and let, letting them grow within an environment that gives them what they need is really your job. But we think it's, it's a much more, you know, nowadays it's a much more interventionist approach. And if I don't do this, I'm going to ruin them, you know. In fact, they'll, they'll, they'll go the direction they're going to go. I mean, it's, it's the phenotype in them mm. is, is going to express, you need it to allow it to express itself. So, um, and further to that, you know, that, it's, it, you see it in Angus all the time. I was, it's an example of how the phenotype expresses itself. So Angus these days is, 
is so far from removed from Aberdeen Angus that that gave rise to the name because mm. it's been to America and it's basically doubled in size. Totally long and leggy and huge, bloody, yeah. huge body structure because they're used to getting enormous amounts of protein in a in a grain fed corn corn based diet. Yeah. So, but when you bring and but their their genetic structure then changes in generations. If you keep feeding an animal corn, it doesn't it loses the ability to effectively convert grass into meat. Mm. Um, the, the one set of Angus that we buy is very old uh, genetics that come from a – they actually come from America but from a closed herd in Montana. Mm. And, um, you know, in Montana they live – that's a very cold place. Those, oh. All those animals live outside the entire winter except for the bulls because it is so cold the testicles would freeze. Get out of here. Yeah. <laughs> so they bring them inside because <laughs> otherwise they need to live little crocheted <laughs> – bag holders like a bowling bag <laughs> could be a uh, mate you sell them downstairs well a friend <laughs> of mine a friend of mine does them. a lot of crocheted sort of penises and, and things and i think that's <laughs> i can see a that's commercial application for what you know uh but those genetics you know i see them when i go to west gippsland i see they're on the poorest paddocks and they get the best results and that's yeah. purely because the genetics haven't been fooled around with mm. and that you know the, that that's a, that's a line of genetics that, that we are in danger of losing. There's virtually no Angus genetics around in Australia mm. that still do that. It's a great example of an industry or, or an, and a breed that was, did a very, very good job of marketing. And again, marketing, and I'm not having a go at Angus breeders by any means, yeah. but it's just a, just a fact that the marketing was very good. Um, uh, the expectat- it met the expectations of customers, and you know that's another conversation about what customers' expectations are, but mm. it, it was... It was really a good example of a well-executed marketing plan that um, that really took over, you know, the cattle breeding world in terms of a, a dominant breed. Mm. And I would argue not for all the right reasons. Well, know. that's right. It, it, the commodity market, which is what it's stitched into, always reduce because it's it's so focused on only one or two parameters. It always ignores the idea of value, and mm. it, it re calibrates value to a very sort of strange, um, you know, they're saying the market's sort of setting the value. It's not at all. It, you know, and a good example is we're talking about the age of beef that we buy. For most of our growers, if they tried to sell those older animals at the market, they would get way less money mm. than they would if they sold them as yearling. Mm. And that's not because it's lesser meat, it's way better. It's because the abattoirs aren't interested in dealing <laughs> with anything cows. over 220 yeah. kilos as a yeah. carcass. Uh, and what can be packed in a box at a reliable size. Mm. It's, it's totally what suits the commodity and, and the industry processes. It's got absolutely nothing to do with the inherent value of the meat or the nutritional quality of the meat or, as we mentioned before, uh, or any other factor. Mm. Or, or, importantly, the environmental consequences of how we raised. So until we can build that in to the, vat, to the price of, of that meat, you've got no accurate reflection of what the consequences are for for producing that animal, and that's the next challenge, and that's that's a challenge of research and policy. Are you looking for more information to assist you on your regenerative journey? We've created an online community of supporters with exclusive access to interview transcripts, live online Q and A sessions with Charlie and his interviewees, as well as the opportunity to be interviewed on the show yourself. If you would like to be part of this community or would simply like to contribute to the development of the podcast series, 
please make your way to patreon.com forward slash the regenerative journey podcast. We look forward to you becoming a member of the regenerative journey community. Let's get back to this week's episode. Let's talk about um, that, the value and the, you know, it, it's um, be hard for someone to argue against the statement that the environment subsidises the cost of food, you know, Certainly. at the moment. Let's talk about that, you know, that, I mean, you know, people, you know, often say, I can't afford organic food. I can't afford that type of whatever the definition of that type of food is, but they can't. Yeah. And then I always say to people, well, don't just think about and look at your, the organic portions of what could be in your diet or in your shopping trolley. Look at everything else. So, you know, I guess what you, what you guys are doing, you're giving people um, uh, a product that they essentially don't need to eat as much of because it's a nutrient-dense type of product. Well, and also you can eat, because we're dealing with the whole animal, there's, your selection of cuts can be much broader. So, um, you know, you can, make, you can just have a broth that has barley and a few vegetables in it and, and you know, the bones have, have contributed in, in that dish. It's, yes, you're eating meat, I suppose, notionally, but really very little. Um, or, a, or a summer lad chicken, you know, people look at the cost of that chicken and say, that is just outrageous. I'm not going to spend fifty dollars on a chicken. Mm-hmm. Yet, if you know, we constantly get feedback from our customers who say, "I've just eaten four meals from that chicken <laughs> and yeah. fed fed my family and four times." <laughs> yeah, and that well, that was the fourth meal probably. Yeah. You know, so they've managed to make you know first cook anyway. I won't go through no, it. No, they do. Let's do it. We do a roast, and then we use the scraps and make sandwiches, a lunches chicken, next day. And then we do a sambo, yeah. and then we do a broth. And that's right. And so. That's actually pretty cheap eating. Mm. And when people say, oh, you, you know, this food is just for elitists, I find that really difficult. We sell something like goat breast or, or lamb breast, which is brisket, uh, boned and rolled. So you're going to get, after cooking, maybe 90% of the weight of that you're going to be able to eat for $22 a kilo. Did you, was you a goat brisket? No? Yeah. You go, wow. It's delicious. I guess, well, I've never thought of goat. I mean, everything's got a brisket, I guess. Um, so usually called breast in lamb or, or, yeah, or goat, but yeah. I like to call it brisket so people sort of can locate it better yeah. because they do understand brisket <laughs> on cattle. Uh, so it's the same cut, and yeah. and we sell that. You know, often that will automatically be minced, or you'll never see it in a shop. No. Basically, is it so, is it similar to beef in terms of that sort of the fat content and its yeah, sort of texture? Yeah, fat, fat content, long fibre, takes Yum. long cooking, but you can do the ribs on. Um, you know, off a young lamb, you can do the ribs on a barbecue as mm. well. So. Uh, you know, you can cook it in fast or slow, mm. but at twenty-two dollars a kilo, that's going to feed five people. And if if somebody's telling me that four dollars twenty for that level of A-class yeah. protein is too expensive, that's more. That's cheaper than a coffee now. You know. Yeah. Or a, a bottle of water costs three dollars yep. fifty. You know, and it's just out of a. You know, I mean, the, the cost the costs of producing that bottle of water are ridiculous. It's like four cents. It's the rest is just in transport mm. and and all the other bullshit, the mm. advertising. Mm. So, or the refrigeration to keep it cool. Um, so I don't buy into that argument. If you want yeah. to eat eye fillet all the time, it is expensive, but it should be expensive. It's only one point four percent of the body weight. So, mm. we get a four hundred kilo, three hundred kilo carcass in here. We'll get maybe four kilos of eye fillet, and that's one point three, one point four percent roughly. Uh, that's about how often you should eat it. Mm. But people will want to eat it much more. So if they want to eat it much more, then they're buying into the commodity market. And all of a sudden, yeah. 
the whole balance has changed and the costs of those are changed. And as you were pointing to, the costs are externalised. You'll pay for that, that cheap cut in some other way. And it won't be directly through what you pay to the, to the retailer. It will be through taxation for remediation. It will be health crisis. It will be having to manage the water systems, which are obviously breaking down. I mean, I think the, where we're at now is a really crucial and interesting sort of nexus. Last year, we noticed a huge change. It was for the first time we felt that people were really getting the idea that what happens at an ecological level affects what they do to eat. And the drought brought that home in a really sort of direct and, and potent way. Um, the imagery, you know, it's very hard to impress on people in the city just what that means, but it actually did, it did do that over a period mm. of a year of quite sort of intense uh, coverage from media. It you mean people seeing the drought? What it actually the, looked uh, yeah, like, yeah. Yep, yep. And, and they were, there were consequences in their food supply as well. And then the fires sort of on top of that, all of a sudden exposed just how fragile the, the veneer of abundance is. Mm. You know, it only takes one fire on the Prince's Highway and every holiday maker on the South Coast can't eat, you mm. know, because their yeah. supermarket's got no power, you know. Yeah. I mean, talk about a dependent fragile. relationship and mm. fragile mm. system. So what was exposed was the lie that this is a really robust abundance. Mm. It isn't. Mm. It's built on the back of... of of, of mining of fertility, which is unsustainable. So, what would make it more um, more stronger? You know, what would be, make it more resilient? In you know, what, what would the shorter, shorter shorter supply chains? One, and that's come home very much in COVID mm. for us. Um, we have a sort of relatively, as we sort of outlined at the beginning, we have a relatively diverse business in that we sell to third party shops, restaurants, cafes, and private customers. Now, and we do spits and things, but so. A third of our business just, or more, 40% of our business just literally vanished overnight. Yeah. Um, but retail dramatically increased, Increase. um, which said something about having a diverse model and, mm. and, what, and how that does provide resilience in, in, a, in, a, in a difficult time. And, you know, which is something we preach for our farmers. It was really interesting to sort of see it work in our own business. Yeah. Um, and, and that... Um, uh, that our supplies actually were never really threatened because we buy direct from farms and so the relationships are about as short as we can, can make them. Um, and so short supply chain and diverse output kept us, you know, we weren't, un we, we were, the business looked very different but we weren't threatened by it. And do you think that your supply of the type of products you were, you were, you were um, sourcing mm. in that time of drought do you think it was because um, those particular farmers were doing a particularly good job, you know, in terms of regenerative agriculture or their, 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 their landscape management, which meant the impact of the drought wasn't as much, so their supply to you wasn't as affected? Was that, was that something to do with it? Uh, well, their stocking densities are much more realistic. Mm. Generally, you know, farmers that have had holistic training are doing constant assessments of mm. how much grass is on the, you know, how much feed is in their paddock versus how many animals and how many days feed they've got. Uh, for a lot of farmers, they just sort of get to the point where it's there's nothing left and go, oh, shit, there's nothing left, you know, like they haven't done the work to yeah. sort of – and then they finish up selling 300 – either either buying in feed to hand feed them at cost they'll never get back. For an indefinite period of time. Yeah, for, mm. yeah that's right, for an indefinite period of time. Or selling it when everybody else is selling and yeah. getting about $1 a kilo. So, yeah. I mean, what 
you know what chain do you want what train do you want to be on yeah. uh, you might forego really heady profits when the season is good mm. by having a, a, a moderate stocking density but you will you know this is about resilience and about change and about coping with change mm. and that's why I think that people are making the connection now because they're seeing it in their own lives of, mm. of just what what's happening in the world and the last 18 months have been extraordinarily challenging in ways that people can't directly control but what you can control is what you buy to eat yeah. and how you feed yourself and your family mm. and we are finding that our customers are making have made many more conscious decisions than they than they had in the past you know people used to come to us because they thought oh well the quality of the meat is very important and stuff and that, that to me is has never been a factor in what we bought. Um, by that I mean, I've never sort of said we sell high quality meat. What we do is, is sell meat that is imbued with a range of qualities which mm. are, are to do with genetics, all the things we've been talking about, are built into that meat. The genetics, what it ate, how it was managed, how it was killed and what we've done with it since. And if I know those things have been looked after, I don't have to, I don't have to worry at all about its quality per mm. se. Mm. It's got acres of qualities built into it yeah the quality is a is a is, a, is the outcome of all of the of all the choices all that the you've choice. already made yeah. and yeah. so it, it actually takes a lot of pressure off because you don't sort of feel like you're competing you know when we started i was if people said look i much prefer heavily grain fed beef and i think it's better fine mm. yep i'm not going to try and dissuade you of that idea all I'm saying is that's not what we sell. And this is three years old that came from this farm, it was grown by this guy, mm. and you make up your own mind about its delicious, deliciousness yeah. or not. So starting from the ground and coming mm. this way is mm. much more helpful for us and for a consumer, I think, once you get the hang of it, than starting from the idea of deliciousness and working back. Because, you know, one's a consequence of the other. Let's, um, let's it's taken us how long 50 minutes to get to your book right oh the ethical yep. omnivore which i was most pleased to receive a copy of uh, in the mail there oh a month ago or so now and um what you why don't you tell us about that um as i said to you the other day it's a book that i've been waiting for you to publish so thank you and it's about bloody time and um what questions were you trying to answer in 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 in, in that book um well, pretty much what, everything we've talked about today, mm. but in a much more direct sense. You know, how did this animal live? How did it die? Where did it come from? Uh, how old is it? Um, there's a, there's a, a lot of focus on how it died, and so we were, there's a chapter, whole chapter uh, that deals directly with what happens in an abattoir, mm. which isn't to be ghoulish. It's simply to say this is important but you have to understand it within the entire life cycle and death cycle of the animal and um, it's crucial obviously uh, but please keep it in context mm. of, of a you know a four-year-old steer what's happened for the previous three years and you know three and a half years before it got to the abattoir and you know it's the, the sort of the salatin idea of you know a great life and one bad day mm. and you know that's that's sort of a cliche now but it's it is true you know if and if you can afford animals that that's this is the contract again you know that we were talking about before if you're going to eat meat acknowledging the, the situation mm. that it's grown and produced in and so what we wanted to, to really do in the book was to document why we choose what we choose to sell mm. uh how inspiring the farmers are and 
you know, what we've learned from the farmers, and we feature a few of them in the book. Vince, who you mentioned mm. before, is in there. Invincible. Um, um, and a number of others. I mean, mm. it, it was actually hard to choose the ones to focus on in the book because, you know, at any one week we've, we've got about 40 different farmers, mm. their, their products represented here. Mm. Um, and so we didn't want to sort of say these are the exceptional ones. We just wanted to use them as examples of, of different farmers working within their particular context mm. and, how, and how important that is, that they operate within their context. So to take Vince's example, he's on the Upper Lachlan River, a very old farm, sixth generation farm, which is very unusual um, in itself to be run by the same family and also for someone to then completely change the production method on mm. that farm after five generations. Uh, but it was a, an acknowledgement that really... That's a low one. <laughs> yeah, it's got four people on it flying to Paris. <laughs> um, I think it's that guy who's picking up his luxury yacht. He got to get out. <laughs> I didn't hear that. Yeah, he, uh, got, he got an exemption. Oh, really? Because really you need a yacht. Um, <laughs> especially now. Uh, he's escaping the COVID. He's, 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 on the, he's sailing the seven seas. Uh, safer, safer out there. Safer out there. Uh, not for the Ruby Princess, though. Like it, it, <laughs> yeah, that's a different scale of disaster. Anyway, uh, <laughs> I lost my thread. Oh, I know, yeah, Vince and, and oh, Upper Lockland. Yeah. yeah, so uh, you know, he, he has a particular location, and and you know, one of the things that we focus on in the book is about how his project around the um, uh, the Southern Pygmy Perch mm. and and providing habitat for for that for that you know very tiny little fish that's mm. that's in deep, deep danger of becoming extinct. Um, and, you know, the, the Lachlan River was originally known as the Fish River and um, yeah. and for very good reason. It mm. was full of fish and obviously a great food source for the local Aboriginal people. And, um, you know, there's many examples of, of, of the habitation on, on Vince's farm as well, you know. So, which is the other thing we haven't even touched on, which is that, you know, you know, we're on land that has been farmed or managed for 40,000 years and if we don't start to get the lessons from that mm. and how you manage fire, how you manage water and how you manage the animals that live on that and the plants that, 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 um, that, that are grown in there, then, you know, we haven't learnt a thing. And that's really... So I said there were two challenges, that's the third challenge. Incorporating yeah. native wisdom producing government policy which recognises that we can't keep farming with a, a declining fertility plane and, um, and recognising the true costs of, of production and in building that into the cost of the product that you buy, all of a sudden what we sell here won't seem expensive, it'll all seem goddamn cheap. So with the policy stuff, Grant, what, what, how do you see that? What, what needs to change there? Where, where, where's the, where's the, not necessarily the low-hanging fruit, but what, where, where, does, where will the most impact be had if something happened you know, in, in that world? Uh, it's a change. At the moment, the Department of Water Resources, the Department of Agriculture and Soils and Environment would barely be in the same building. No. They should be in the same office. Mm. It possibly should be the same person. Same department, yeah. Uh, same department, you know, run by three people who work, you know, mm. until you can acknowledge that those three things are completely inextricably linked, mm. you, won't, you won't be able to produce a coherent food policy because... Mm. It's only out of that that you can that you can produce a food policy that makes any sense. It it starts with us with humility, which is understanding that 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 uh, th those conditions, 
you know, we're here, but for the grace of, of those creative uh, conditions. And if we keep abusing them, we're not going to be around for much longer to enjoy them. So, mm. you know, that is a big change in understanding and thought. And, but as you were alluding to before, there are so many farmers that are wanting to change because they are being forced to it. Mm. And they can see declining, it's just not adding up for them anymore. Yeah. They can see their input levels and they can see their output levels. And they're realizing that the gap between the two has diminished to the point where, in fact, they're spending more on inputs than they are on outputs or mm. getting what they're getting back for outputs. It's a definition of any sustainable system. What does it take you to produce it and what are you getting out of it? And farming is no different. And, and, and it's a really important definition. I mean, a lot of people talk about, oh, it's a very sustainable product. But on what basis? So what mm. we would say is that measure the inputs. You know, people will, t will trumpet their outputs endlessly, but you yeah. will never hear what they did to get that. You know, milk, milk supplies from a, from a, a Holstein, what, how much grain did it eat to produce that yeah. amount of milk, you know? Mm. And how long did it live? What, what were the problems with its feet? How many times did you get the vet in? I guarantee the vet lives on your product, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, and it's, a, it's, a, it's a, a thing I didn't observe for quite a while is that all the farmers we work with virtually have zero vet bills. Mm, totally. You know, and that's a significant expense on a farm if you're running an intensive farm. You know, if you're running intensive piggery or chickens or, or dairy, man, you've got, a, you've got a team of vets there all the time, mm. you know. Prop, and propping up the system, really. Holding the system up, exactly, yeah. which is not, you know, which is, has a remarkable similarity to the human health system mm. and how we think about it. Mm. We think we can't afford this, but if you look at what we spend on health mm. and what we spend on water immediately, how much did we spend on buying back water for the Murray-Darling? How many billions was it? Yeah, I should know. Yeah, so it's, it, we do have the money. Mm. Mm. It's just a matter of priorities and how we choose to approach it. And if you want to approach it as a remedial all the time, you'll just keep spending more and more. If you want to approach it as a way how can we actually change the dynamics of this system so that our spend at the other end is going to be lower? All of a sudden, it'll seem like a bargain. I was um, listening to an interview I did with uh, Martin Royds, um, a farmer from Braywood, uh, just yesterday, and I did the interview a year ago, and he reminded me that we spent, well, New South Wales government, I think it was New South Wales, not, not federal, spent $2 billion on a desal plant, mm. right? And if that money had been spent on, on farm, on, on, on with farmers, remediating waterways and riparian zones, like that yep. would have actually, that would have created um, a much more healthy hydrological system, which would then have, it have been a, we still would have had water in those dams to supply metropolitan areas for drinking water. Yeah. But because of, we've created such a wonderful drainage system. That just all off, goes just go, straight out. Yeah, it's, it's, out the, it's out the door. Um, back to health just quickly. I reckon, I love your new super department. I think we need to throw the health department in there as well. Health, yes, that's right. Land, Health, environment, water, environment. Water. Exactly. That's what we want. Um, we're nearly. Oh, look, Grant, you've got a, you've got work to do. I've got questions, more questions for you. What have um, you got? Oh, look. Uh, okay, here we are. Might you might not not that you're the not not the right person to ask, but I'll ask you anyway. Is tips for farmers who are who want a value add or are wanting to not necessarily sell to you, but they're mm. just sort of wanting to sort of. Value add control and control of the yeah, take more control output. and get it into a different sort of food system. What, what what would you say to them? It's it's sort of depressing, but when I, almost the first question I would ask them, and I, we get a lot of inquiries about this. People saying, oh, "I'm starting a farm, and I want, you know, mm. do you have anything that you you would want to buy?" Or and where is it? Okay, so where's your nearest abattoir? I don't know. Uh, well, you'll need to know because if you're transporting 
small numbers of animals to a, an abattoir that's a long way away, you will go broke very quickly. Mm. You won't be able to charge what you need to charge to, to, to cover that cost. Yeah. And that'll be a full day off farm, which is a very expensive thing, or you mm. pay somebody else to do that, which is again a very expensive cost. thing. And so then you might want to look at an on-farm abattoir, but that's, you know, for someone just starting farming, that maybe is a long way down the mm. track. I mean, we're getting, we are getting, uh, there are alternatives now, Provenir in Victoria, and, you know, the, it's not quite as closed as it was before, but mm. still we're having abattoirs close, you know, the last 10 years, 10 abattoirs in New South Wales have closed, to my knowledge. A couple have reopened. Mm. One is sort of teetering on reopening, but it doesn't mm. actually look likely now at Oberon. Um, and that increased distance not only is expensive, but the stress on the animal, and it's, it's, it's undesirable at every level. And so it's a prosaic question, but even if they're growing vegetables, well, how far is it to the people who are going to distribute that? Mm. You know? And in Australia, those logistics questions are crucial and, and ever-present just simply because of the distances and, and the lack of density. So you know, if you were in rural France, your local town would have enough people to mm. absorb what you produce, mm. or your local city, which might only be you know, 30 kilometres away, 40 kilometres away. And so the economics of that are completely different to what happens in Australia. And so that would be the first thing. And yeah. then obviously making sure, and, and the importance of water, not just water obviously on their landscape and managing it in their landscape, but that their animals get good water mm. because it's, a, it's sort of rarely looked at weirdly by many farmers is the quality of the water. Mm. And so, you know, you'll have a cow standing in a, in a dam shitting everywhere and mm. drinking out of it at the same time, mm. you know. I like cows, but they're very, you know, they're very thoughtless <laughs> in that way. And if you're not shipping water to them in a way that manages it and keeps out that contamination, mm. and I sort of find it, I find it very strange that people don't address water quality when they're mm. talking about animal, animal work, especially if you're growing meat. I take it for granted. Highly. Mm. You know, if mm. they, they can get plenty well, of water down water. there. Yeah, yeah, they've got water. Yeah. Um, but the quality of that water is crucial. We have some mm. ducks here that, um, that live at 1,000 metres completely outside. Why I think they're really good is that they're on top of the Wombian Caves aquifer. Wow. And so the water that's coming literally out of the ground at, at, at pressure mm. is the, the purest, most alkaline water that I've ever seen on a farm. And um, the quality of the ducks, the same genetics are grown intensively and normally intensive will produce a faster growth rate. Mm. His grow faster than, than at 1,000 metres mm. in, in snow than what grows in a shed. And with a much the quality of the meat is mm. way better, and I think it's got a lot to do with the water because they're eating the same thing actually. Yeah, right. Well, apart from grass, but their their main their additional diet is the same. So those variables are obviously very important. We've got a little device on our bore because a lot of our stock is on bore water. Mm. It's a Fion device. It's sort of like a two two and a three foot long cylinder with magnets in it and oh, some yes. other spooky wah wah crazy stuff. And we put that that's on the bore, and it basically keeps the water in a negatively charged state ah. for its entire life as opposed to going into a tank and then going positive after 24 hours it stays and so we've found that's that because that of the circulation of it well i don't know it, it's phion p-h-i-o-n um and there's a magnet in it or the magnets but there's mm. also some other uh, i think vortex sort of yeah so it's moving it all the time yeah just in that just in the door just it just goes through once so it goes out of the bore through this device it's just a long silver cylinder and then it goes into troughs and tanks and so on. So it's the biodynamic it sort of side of keeping active water and energetic. Water. Yeah. yeah, and it's um, you know that's that's 
yeah, I'm sure that's improved the water because we just we haven't had the the um, the cattle. You know, depending on the time of year and their requirements, sometimes they would get pretty testy, and we just couldn't work out what it was. Uh, and then no. we did some water testing, and we went, actually, we got to this. You know, the, the, this bore water, reasonably new bore, needed um, something. This seems to have solved the problem in a really pretty simple way. Mm. Um, now, Grant, where can people find your book? It's pretty widely available, actually. I think you can get it online at the, the Big Ugly Guys and, um, you, you know, uh, sorry, well, can Booktopia. They get, can they <laughs> <laughs> we love you, Booktopia. Yeah. Um, can they come into the shop? And tell, yeah, we, tell, sell, tell it, one of the we sell it here and in Marrickville in the shop. And, um, Do you want to give people an address? Oh, it's, <laughs> it's hard to find. Just, just, just look it up online. It's easier. It's easy to find it online. Lillian Fowler. Lillian Fowler Place. Yeah. Um, but, you know, if you like good, good independent bookstores, Better Red Than Dead, have a really nice supply of, mm. uh, up in Newtown if you're in this sort of neck of the woods and you can't get to our place. Mm. Otherwise, uh, if you're in Melbourne, Readings have got a good load of it. Great um, bookstores, yeah. Uh, but otherwise, you know, you can order it online if you're in the country. And talking about ordering online, they can jump on the Feather and Bone website and um, put an order in? Yeah, you can just order it online and we'll... Put, I, no, for, 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 for meat as well? Not oh, sorry, I beg your pardon. Uh, yes, go straight to the website and if you can't see exactly what you want, you can always um, contact us and say, well, this was out of stock or I... I've got a particular requirement and we'll do our best to, to, to handle that for you. We're hoping to have distribution to Canberra and uh, piggybacking on Doorstep Organics who already do this, do this run. Yeah, cool. Uh, to Canberra and Wollongong and Newcastle regularly every week, yeah. uh, twice a week. So um, that will increase our range and, mm. and reach fairly soon. It's been a bit sort of tricky trying to get stuff out of Sydney recently, but um, we're hoping that will work really well with them and uh, they're already going there and it's, you know, they've got very good refrigerated trucks so that yeah. should work well. Good and, um, you know, rather than duplicating a logistics department, mm. we don't own many vans really here but we try and get as much <laughs> sort of out as we yeah. can with the minimal sort of extra expense of the trucks and things. I mean, ideally, eventually our vans will be charged off our roof here but that's the next stage. Yeah, good work. Mm. Grant, um, I know you've got to go and break down a buffalo or something, so I'll mm. let you go. Um, mm. Thank you so much for your time uh, and thank you for providing to the public, to your customers, to the world, um, an opportunity for them to engage with their food in a meaningful way and to access the, uh, I guess, the produce of farmers who are you know, doing the right thing, thing, if I could say that, who are actually caring for their environment and caring for their ecology and caring for their communities um, around them. So, and that's, you know, more, all power to you and more, more, more people like you. I think that's a really... Um, more power to the farmers. I mean, that's, yeah. that's thank you. Uh, the last thing I'd say is uh, every time you buy meat, you vote for the system you want to produce it, mm. not just me, anytime you buy any food. Good, yeah. And that, because it can be very easy to be despondent. Mm. Uh, there actually is a message of hope here and it is that you have an enormous capacity to, to induce and pr promote change. And, uh, you know, one person, I know, it's the, it's the thing of what can I do as one person? Well, you can do that. Mm. You can change what you buy you can help a farmer who's doing the right thing, shall we say, mm -hmm. in a really positive and direct way. And it's actually a yeah. really, really clear feedback loop that, that is amplified the more times you do it. 
and we're just here to facilitate that amplification. And also I think it's important just to conclude, you know, parents with children, you know, to sort of set new standards of of yeah. decision making in terms of what goes on the on the on the table. You well, know, children where, where are driving this actually. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of our we have a lot of families that shop with us mm. and it's kids that they always bring their children and it's a really key part of what we like to offer here. So mm. Yeah. It's important. So, And the one other thing is the extension of that is that while farms, you look at them and you think, how's that farm going to come back? Our experience is that in a very short period of time, 20, 30 years, you can completely rehabilitate landscapes. Mm. And so if you think something looks like it's sort of, that's it, you'll never produce, get, a, get anything decent off that farm again, it's actually not the case. You can, it, the, the ability of natural systems to recover quickly mm. is astonishing mm. and if so we just let it if we let them and if we provide initially it's going to provide it'll require intervention and then once once you have the engine ticking mm. over then mm. you can stand back but you know facilitating that intervention initially and then allowing it to work you know it's remarkable how fast the recovery is so they're, they're the two messages of hope that i i hope people can take from this because mm. it's really easy to think that it's all fucked I'm glad you ended on that one. Now, before we do, I've got something to talk about providing. So a, a jar of my mother's sweet orange marmalade. When did she make that? Only a couple of weeks ago. Oh, now, right. the you. significance of this is, well, A, it's really yummy, mm -hmm. and, um, and B, this is the recipe that mum used back in the late 60s to win the best orange marmalade Award at the Durham Bandy Show in about 1968, and we and the prize. Oh, I can see why. The the prize was a plastic um, orange um, uh, squeezer, squeezer mm. which we still own and I use. Well, there you go. So some day. plastics are okay. Well, that was back <laughs> in the day when they actually didn't think about. Well, we need this to, to, to fall apart in two years' time. They yes. went, no, this has got to last forever. So and it has, and okay. that jar is not going to last forever. It's only, <laughs> it's only quite small, but it's killer. So okay, um, Grant, well, thank, thank you very you, much. Thank for that. you for your um, your time. <laughs> there you go, there you go, Mama. That's uh, your jam, um, mate. That was wonderful. Good. Thank you. Thank you. Well, there you go. Had a wonderful chat there with Grant in his it's his workplace. It's his creative space there at Feather and Bone in Sydney, and really appreciate the time he put aside because he could have been unloading trucks and doing all sorts of stuff, selling meat, but he didn't. And uh, we had a really good yarn there, and I trust you enjoyed that one. Next week, I'm very excited to announce that Kate Nelson, the plastic-free mermaid, is my my guest. I caught up with her in a five-acre um, little farm just out of Byron Bay. Uh, we talked about her sort of venturing into the regenerative agriculture space through her advocacy work and, and her consciousness of environmental um, issues, m namely uh, the use and the, the disposal of plastic into our environment and where it's, it's insidious um, nature, really, the way it's, uh, it's getting into everything, our clothes, it's in our food, it's, on just, it's, you know, it's all over the place. We ingest one credit card worth of plastic a week, could you believe? Um, so that's next week. We'll hear more of that uh, then, and uh, I, I trust you enjoy uh, enjoy the episode when it pops out. This podcast is produced by Rhys Jones at Jaeger Media. If you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to subscribe, share, rate, and review. For more episode information, please head over to www.charliearnett.com.au.